Hello, my name is Quinn Vong, community organizer. I love to do humanitarian work to bring so social justice, and I love to strengthen the Vietnamese community via the social services. Welcome to the Vietnamese. I'm your host, Kenneth Nguyen. Being part of a culture of nearly 100 million Vietnamese people in the world today comes with a lot of pain, proud history, and privilege. Join me as I highlight and explore the Vietnamese experience from all over the world. What does it mean to be Vietnamese to you? I guess I was born Vietnamese to begin with. Those days that I was raised with all the stories, all the, you know, anecdotes about um, my ancestors, all of that really just seeped into me. It's in the food, it's in the blood. So when I came to America at the age of 16 as a refugee, I knew who I am. I am a Vietnamese refugee. You know, that's an interesting point you bring up about when you came from Vietnam at 16, you knew who you are. Because I don't know about your children, but the kids that were kind of born here, you know, in the 70s, or just uh, kids when they came, there's a lot of problems with that sort of that identity issue because at 16, you're kind of fully formed at that point coming to the United mm -hmm. States. You, you know who you are and you know where you come from. You know why you're here in the United States. Right. 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 And, and it plays out differently. How, how did it feel uh, going through high school when you were coming at 16? I left Vietnam almost at the end of my 11th grade, my junior year. So when I got to the States, I was supposed to start my senior year, but because I didn't know English, I was put back three years. So I had to start high school again. So there was a lot of crying, you know, feeling bad. Now that, you know, I'm the big sister, but I, my younger brother is in 10th grade and then I'm in ninth grade. So all of that face issue, you know, how could I be so bad? It was a lot of um, pain and adjustment. But I realized, I quickly realized that, hey, even though I'm in ninth grade, I'm teaching my younger brother how to do math because my math is better than his. So, but it took, it, it was quite a lesson in, you know, to put things in perspective, to, to really know who you are, because I, I had to keep on reminding myself that the reason I was put back in three years, because I told the counselor I wanted to go to college. So she said, then go back to ninth grade, build your foundation. So. Did you know where you wanted to go to college? I don't know. At the time, my brother got accepted. Uh, my brother came in 75 and he got accepted to Princeton. So all I know is that is a big school and I want to go to college like him. I don't know anything else. So. I had your sister, Jizia. Uh, on the show, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's like uh, Ivy League education seems like uh, a big thing in your family. Well, education is not so much Ivy League because back then we didn't know anything, right? Uh, in Vietnam, we didn't know what Ivy League is about. That's why I'm asking the question because that's what I, I wondered about your family, you know, when as I read about it, you know, it's everybody's in Ivy League schools, but it was so early in the early years that I wondered, is that something that was discussed quite a bit in your family? I think um, it all started with my brother. 
you know, like the Vietnamese parents always said, the firstborn is the lead, is the leader. So he he got here, he got to the U.S. in 1975 with uh, going with an aunt's family. And so, um, you know, and he somehow he found his way to Princeton and he had sponsors and all that. And the sponsors have actually helped sponsor my dad and my sister and younger brother when they were in the camp. So uh, they they left. So my brother came in 75, Dieb and uh, Hugh, and my dad and my grandmother, Banoi, left in 1980, and I took a younger brother in 81. And so by the time I came here, you know, my oldest brother was already at Princeton. Um, and so that gave me and Dieb uh, a sense of, hey, let's go to Ivy League, because we don't, before that, we don't know what Ivy League is about, you know? Um, but uh, we we came from a family that highly values education. Yeah, I'm I'm torn with that topic. You know, I'm I'm obsessed with it. On one hand, uh, I talk about it quite a bit. Uh, this idea of Ivy Leagues and the East Coast uh, in terms of education, and I feel like much later, uh, the people that have arrived, you know, uh, as as the kids grew up in the '80s and '90s it became more important to kind of find your footing at the bigger schools, at the more, um, you know, how do we say it in Vietnamese? Right? It's the, <laughs> the really uh, elite schools that, you know, you graduate from these schools and it makes a huge difference in what you can do with, with um, where you're placed in society. And, uh, you know, today we don't think of it because, you know, you can laterally move uh, basically in your, industry even in technology sometimes you don't even have to go to school and still make you know good money and so it's not as i i look back on the history of that sort of mindset of the vietnamese people and when it goes back as early as people as you that have gone to ivy league so early on it it really blows my mind to 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 hear about it well you know to me at the time honestly i just wanted to do the best i could right i did the best i could in school and then I tried out and I got accepted. So I'm happy. Um, I remember when I went for the Yale interview, you know, they asked me, well, why do you want to go to Yale? And I'm like, honestly, I don't know the difference. I've never, I got here four years ago. I've never been outside of Texas. I work 30 hours a week at the school to support the family. So I don't know anything. All I know is that my brother go, goes, went to Princeton, my sister is at Harvard, and they constantly fight each other who schools better. And so I want a school of my own. And he took it. I mean, that was an honest answer. So when, when I got accepted, I called him to thank him. And he said, congratulations, you now have your own school. So to me, that that taught me that, you know, being genuine is very important because all these alumni, you know, they are so smart. You can't pull a fast one over them, you know. It just just be straightforward and be be genuine. It's pretty insane. Four years and you get into Yale. It's uh what a feat. It's amazing. Work hard. Work hard. Hard work, right? Yeah. You know, sister, my sister has got to Harvard in three years. Oh, because she came to the United States and then three years later she was at Harvard. You said, yeah, yeah. It's unfathomable to me. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, um, 
I grew up in a family where education was as important as becoming priest. You know, mm-hmm. we had a mm-hmm. long tradition of, of being Catholic in, in, in my family. And so my parents didn't push it. I look back and I, in anger sometimes, thinking about, um, you know, my brother and I could have, well, I think we, we could have made it, but we just didn't get motivated. And we were encouraged to prepare for the afterlife a lot more than the life mm-hmm. here, the current life on earth. Mm-hmm. And it was such, it was such a big push in my family. We had cousins that came in the 80s, a little bit older than us, and they would look at us like we were spoiled because, you know, they they said, what a wasted opportunity. You guys don't care about education. You guys don't work hard. And looking back years later, every time I run into Ivy League people or people who who made the big schools, it always, you know, rubs me in, in such a... A regretful, not I, I. There's nothing I could have done about that because at the time, but I look back and I do the comparison of like, um, you know, It always felt that the drive and the ter- determination, when they were given that opportunity, they took it and they really ran with it in most cases. Yeah. What, what I found is that um, in the early years, those of us who arrived in the early years, our drive to succeed and survive was so much stronger. Yeah. I'm not saying that people these days are, are, are less driven, right? Some are, some are not. Because today, these days, uh, even with my, my uh, son's generations, you know, they have other options. At that time, we had no options. Correct. I did get it or die do it or die so that's why you know we went all in i remember we were so poor that we were constantly um behind in paying uh, paying rent to the point that i wanted to drop out of school to flip burgers full time and i wrote to my grandfather in vietnam and he said he's the one who gave us the sense of value the value uh, on education you know he said, no, 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 don't do it. You're going to be poor, be poor together, but move forward together. Nobody can make up those lost years for you. So don't do it. And so I listened to him and we moved forward. And, you know, so we all got to college. And then eventually you end up uh, in Hong Kong as a Fulbright scholar, right? Yes. Can you tell me about that? So, um, my journey to, you know, from um, escaping from Vietnam on a boat is really, really shaped my life journey later, right? So I left Vietnam in 1981 on a boat, two meter long, 10 meter wide, uh, two meter wide, 10 meter long. There were 49 of us on the boat and we drifted for about, um, we were on the ocean for about five nights and four days. We got chased by the pirates. We landed on a deserted island. We uh, we were you know we approached the the uh, uh, Malaysian fishermen, and then we ran away from them because they wanted to, for the women and the children to dance for them. So we ran away, and then we landed on Malaysian shore. Didn't know where it was. The local police came, took us, you know, and and. Uh, took us in and then sent us to Pulau Bidang, which is the refugee camp. I remember when, as we got off the boat, I turned around 
and I saw people get out of the boat and they uh, they use the the hammer or whatever you know they they sank the boat right in front of my eyes and that's when I said oh no how am I gonna go back so So from that time on, I went to the refugee camp. And during the during the time I was on the, the island, I I understood how I experienced how it felt to be an orphan. Because at that time my dad was in the US, my mom was in Vietnam. I'm on the road by myself. Was I was 16, my brother was 11. Um, I have two cousins about my age, our age, 16 and 11. And when my aunt when I went to say hey, bye-bye to my aunt, she said, oh, no, 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 no. If you are leaving, I'm going to entrust you with my two daughters. So so we, we had some of the relatives, but still, you know, when you're on the island in the refugee camp, you kind of like to have to survive by yourself. So, uh, and during, so I, I stay in the camp for four months only, but those four months really ingrained in my mind, you know, the dream, when I left the camp, I, I promised myself that I would go back just to bring hope to the people and the children. And so that's why when I got to college and I, um, you know, the summer between uh, the, the summer between the junior and, junior, and, and senior year in college, I applied for a fellowship from Yale, class 1956. They... Uh, they gave us money to do whatever that we've been dreaming about to do. Wow. And two of us got that. I went, we work in the refugee camp in Hong Kong, and my classmate went to bar hopping in Ireland. So it's it's the kind of opportunities that Yale gave me that I really, really appreciate. And so from that summer experience, I applied to get the Fulbright to go back to work in the refugee Vietnamese refugee camps in Hong Kong after I graduated from Yale. What year did you go back to uh, the refugee camps the first time from the class of 1956's donation? Um, that was the year, summer of 1988. Okay, so the, the refugee camps were still in full force, right? Yes. In 1989, in 1989 and 90 when I went back for the Fulbright 1980-98 is where they started to um, to do forced repatriation that was 89-90 and who did you work with uh, at these camps when you went back I worked in uh, as a as a um, interpreter for the UNHCR representative in the camp and, and what, was it, what was it like? It was, it was very strange because on the one hand, I'm just an interpreter, but on the other hand, I'm everything that people counted on, and you know, was, every day. And that huh? was just you a few years before, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so that was a really big switch. Right. And and so from every day I travel from the island that I used to live on to go to the camp 
that would take about two hours one way. And then I get there, the camp, the Shem Shoepo camp in, in the summer, the first time I went there, is in the middle of the city with barbed wires around the camp and then, uh, you know, apartment uh, buildings, sky rise around it. So we kind of like, you know, we're looking like a zoo. People can look down on us. They see barbed wire and that's where we are. Um, and I remember there was one incident that really uh, stayed with me. So one day, so I usually come into, came in, went into the camp on the weekends because I have nothing to do. So I went in and uh, that one day I went in and I, I heard there was a big, big commotion. People were screaming. And right around the office, so the office is inside, out around it is all these um, fences all the way straight up. It's a, it's inside a warehouse and you have the fence all the way straight up. And people were climbing on that fence. Wow. They were so aroused. They were just going crazy. They were screaming, you know, do not hit him. Do not kill him. It turned out that there was one man inside you know, inside the, the office and he was beaten up. He was being beaten up pretty badly. And and when I came in, they said, the the crowd just saw me and they said, oh, Queen is here. And then immediately they went around me, right behind me and kind of closed in right behind me and forced me to go forward. There's nowhere else I could go. Wow. So I was forced all the way up to the fence and, and deep inside, I'm like, oh my God, what am I doing here? But I saw a man inside and I was only, I was what? I was 24. I didn't know, I mean, I've never been, you know, to war or anything like that. I've, I've never seen anybody being beaten. So, but I took, I took all of my courage and I said, open the door for me and stop beating him. And so they said, no, who are you? This and this and that and they won't open the correctional department uh, officers. And I said, open the door or I'm gonna have to report this to the UN. So they opened the door and I went in and I saw the man was, was hiding under the table and he was like this under the table. And so after that, they they let him go and the the, the crowd quieted down and dispersed. And then I went outside and he followed me outside and he said, Miss, they gave me these pills, but I didn't dare to, to, uh, to swallow. So he took out from his mouth and he gave them to me and I saw the word ibuprofen. So I said, no, it's okay. It's pain medication. And so um, that, that was the incident that I'm like, oh my God, I cannot, I cannot back down. I didn't have the gut. If, if I had a choice, I probably would have backed down, but there was no choice. The crowd was right behind me. So that taught me a big lesson about, you know, who I am, how much guts I have, and, you know, how much it is that, you know, the circumstances force you into doing something. That was pretty scary, actually. That sounds scary. But yeah. what, what did they go after him for? Okay, so... In Hong Kong, those days, um, apparently some people sneaked out of the camps at night. Remember I told you the camp is in the middle of the city? 
they sneaked out and they and every morning they they took roll call and they weren't there they weren't there so you know they got caught coming back in and uh, one of them just just swore you know he said it, it's just kind of like he said dm but not to anybody per se he would just say but then the correctional uh, officer they were like how dare you swear at me you know uh and then they they hit him they they beat him up oh and these were correctional officers that understood the the vietnamese you know dm for you know um, as a sign of they understood yeah. it yeah, I mean, some some are, uh, can speak both um, Cantonese and Vietnamese, um, and they know. You know, when they do those kind of work, um, they know those special words very well. So after you leave college, uh, you don't go into humanitarian work right away, right? You you do things that are money making and things that are going to produce a better life for you and your yeah. family, right? So. So after I graduated from Yale, um, my mom was coming. So so after the refugee camp, right? Um, I went to uh, well, after I graduated from Yale, I took a year to do the Fulbright in the refugee camps, and then after that, my mom and my sis younger sister and grandmother were coming. So I had to go back and get a real job to to support them. And the job at that time it was very bad uh, job market. So I got a um, I got a job in an environmental consulting firm with the Dip was there first and she she brought me in. So we worked and then um, for uh, for two years or so and then I decided to apply to go to Stanford Graduate School of Business. And then after Stanford, I took a little detour into the business world for about four or five years. And then I, I found out that. I didn't really like it. I mean, I'm content. I do well, okay, but not well the way I wanted to, not not with all my passion and all that. So that's when I realized that I need to go back to the nonprofit world because that's where my heart really is. Yeah, it's hard to it's hard for for me to comprehend that because during that time, those years were so critical for for Vietnamese to build wealth and of your generation, you know, that that's a lot of things. And to go out and say, you know what, I'm gonna segue and leave these, you know, this amazing place that, you know, I'm sure with an MBA from Stanford, undergrad from Yale, to I'm so interested in the switch that goes from, you know, that that pursuing money and then switching right over to, mm -hmm. you know, nonprofit humanitarian work. That's very rare for the Vietnamese community to to make that hard left into something like that. Yeah, it's um, that's where the Buddhist foundation came in. Uh, it's it's this, this sense of because you know I I I was born into a Buddhist family. I grow up going to the temples. But I really did not did not really understand Buddhism until um, about twenty years ago, right? So until I'm thirty something. But at that time, uh, when I was making the switch, to me, it's it's more like if I have enough to eat, 
that's okay. I don't need to be rich. And and it's, I guess in some ways you can call it, you know, it's it's wire, it's in blood. It's just it's just this gnawing uh discontent, this gnawing sense of not being passionate about it, about the work. That's drives me nuts. You know, so so then what happens uh, when you start to have this realization? What steps do you take? Um, so at that time, you know, I was married and, you know, my, hus my husband then was, we were financially okay. That, you know, in, in 2000, when, uh, when I got laid off from uh, the uh, uh, startup, you know, I was working at a startup that was doing voice over IP, right? And fortunately, that one did not succeed, but many others succeeded, and voice over IP is now a reality, right? So um, when I left that voice, uh, that startup, that's when I realized that, hey, I'm just going to go back and really do things that I, I like. Because you know, at the time, at that time, I already have a son. I have a a, a husband who can you know, uh, who can help me with the finance. So we we were not that rich. We we are okay. So. And so, what did you do? What what's the first thing you do? So I co-found. So during the time that I was still working at the startup, I co-founded ICAN, and ICAN is uh, we we give it a name international children assistance network so there's international is us and vietnam children is the children assistance i wanted to give the children in vietnam uh, opportunities the same kind of opportunities that i was given when i came to the states to rise up and get your fulfill your dream in uh, in getting your education so then you can really stand on your own feet right in vietnam Getting education is key. So it's here in the US, but in Vietnam, much more so. So that's that's what I did. And then when I got laid off from the uh, the startup, that's when I went back and do full time, uh, work full time on the uh, on the nonprofit organization that I co-founded. What was the hardest part in the beginning years? You mean doing the nonprofit? Yes, I can. Um, the hardest part, it was actually a lot of fun because I had a lot of fun going to the temple, meeting all the people because, because that, that nonprofit, one of the co-founders is Thay Phat Chiang. The other one is GIV. So she's also Buddhist. I'm also Buddhist. He's definitely Buddhist. He, like He's a Buddhist monk. So, um, so Aiken was born in the basement of Liu Guang Temple. And we worked very hard uh, we we but we had a lot of love from all the the people who come to the temple they always say hey i'm gonna gong hey i have food for you that's it's plenty and so the temple became kind of like um my second home so i really really enjoy that and when you first started did you focus more on the vietnam side or the U.S. side? When I first started, it was all Vietnam. Because as a refugee, there is something, some, something in our psyche that we want to go back and give back. 
right? So ICANN was founded in the year 2000. In the year 2003, my son was born in 98. ICANN was founded in 2000. 2003, I look at my son and I realize, uh-oh, he's growing up here, right? And I want him to be, to retain the Vietnamese roots. But how do I do that exactly? How do I help him build the roots? So I realized that, you know, focusing, my focusing on Vietnam uh, is not going to help him to, to build the cultural roots here. So I need to look, I need to help build the cultural foundation for my son and his generations here in the U.S. And that's when I realized that, you know, the Vietnamese community in America is the cultural foundation for the children. Like it or not. And with all the issues, with all the nuances, with all the uh, bickering and, and all that that's happening with it, within the community, it is the cultural foundation for our children. So, your son, so how do we yeah. make it? So your son's five at this point, 2003, right? Yeah. And you're going back and forth a lot to Vietnam. Do you bring him with you? You know, yeah. or... Okay. Yeah. And as you're bringing him with you, he's becoming more, um, you know, speaking probably Vietnamese a lot more because of people around him, right? Yes. Now, yes. All these years later, and the questions I ask are, you know, 90% because I go through this experience with my own <laughs> five-year-old. And, and I wonder, years, you look back years later, did it make an effect on his curiosity culturally to becoming more Vietnamese. I, that's a ra weird way to say it, but I, I don't mean more Vietnamese, but is he more curious about the Vietnamese culture after all these years? He did for a while. Um, so when, when, uh, when he was about eight years old, right? I took him to, I took him to Vietnam multiple times. And it's so fun because I always go do humanitarian work. So, and I that means in the trenches. So that means like going to villages and all that. And he's like, man, I'll go with you, but can we please stay in five-star hotels? It's too hot in Vietnam. He's <laughs> coming from a kid, right? So I said, okay, okay. How about if you do this, 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 and this with me? And at the end of the trip, we'll go to a five-star hotel. But there was one time I remember he was eight, and we were eating inside um, at a inside a Bangkok, right? Bangkok place. And there was a little kid about his age coming up to us, trying to sell the uh, chewing gums. And and I saw Koi. His name, my son's name is Koi. I saw Koi went to ask how much is chewing gum and he came back and uh, he he was all shaken i first i asked the kid how old you are how he was and why he's not um, in school he said he has to sell chewing gum to to make ends meet right so my son i can see my son's hand was shaking because he realized that you know somebody like him could be like that so he asked me for some money and went, went by the chewing gum. Um, then another year, uh, two years later, we went back again and he, uh, 
um, he uh, learned how to do twist animal balloons. He learned it online and he did it. He went to Vietnam and he did animal balloons for all the children in the orphanages. So, so little things here and there, um, I think he, that kind of sold the seeds in him. And then uh, one time I interviewed him and, and my nephew, I said about being Vietnamese American. And so I said, Koi was about eight, nine, and Min was about six or seven, right? And I said, in what way are you Vietnamese? Just like the way you, you asked. And Min said, it's in the food. And Koi said, you dummy, it's in the blood. So um, that, that sense of, I think, the Vietnamese-ness, I think is still in him. Even though later on, when I my uh, when I got divorced, then his other side of the family is, is Caucasian, so he spent a lot, and then he went to school with Caucasians, so he he become very American, nice. But I I think deep inside he still has the roots. I hope so. I well, you know, I, yeah, I asked that because I I I find myself so addicted is not the word so attracted so focused on this whole meaning of what does it mean to be Vietnamese um I just finished the bronze drum uh, written by Feng Wei and it's a new release uh book about the Jung sisters and we were you know in the, in the story it's a fictionalized version inspired obviously by true events but we could have been Chinese right we could have been conquered by France, we could have been conquered by all these other countries, but we're still Vietnamese, right? Mm -hmm. and, and and that's a, a really strange thing. The more and more you think about it, right? The, especially the, the, the relationship with the Chinese, because it was such a close thing all the time. I mean, they could have just swallowed us whole so many times and it never it really never happened. And we're still the Vietnamese. And that idea of Hundreds of years later, almost a thousand years later, we're still Vietnamese. Now, what I worry about all the time, and it, it afflicts me, is in another hundred years, when we're all melting, you know, in, in the United States, it's a melting pot. Okay, that's fine. But in Vietnam, and then that, that relationship, that distance between the diaspora and the Vietnam, I always wonder what the mechanics of all of this will be and who we turn out to be and the borders, the cultural borders, the cultural separation um, with people like Koi and myself. And I want it so bad not to diminish and go away. And that's why I do this work. It's just so important to hear um, the, the way that you think and, and the history of your life. And you're one of the building blocks of the tapestry of the Vietnamese and how beautiful the, the culture truly is. And we're just one of hundreds of other cultures on, on earth. But we just happen to be Vietnamese and we're still here. And so it's a, an important thing to, to document and listen for me to, to, to hear your story. You know, actually, um, I agree with you. The, the story of the Jung sisters, uh, they are really heroes to me. You know, they, I, I remember them and I remember, and, and here's one thing that I just found out that I never knew all these years, right? There is another, uh, Quang Trung Nguyen Hui. Right, he's a king. 
who fought and and, and um, conquered uh, and and who fought and kicked out the Chinese. Um, and he he is well known for an expeditious um, journey from the south to the north and kicked them out and and took over Tanglong uh, the fifth day of the new year and stuff like that. I heard that story times before, but what I did not know is that that time the that the Chinese king was Gang uh, Long, who was uh, what's what's his uh, English name? Vua Gang Long, Chen Long. Okay, so the the Qing dynasty, the last dynasty of China. There are two famous kings, the Kang He and Kang Long. And they they're so famous. I really admire mm -hmm. them and, and I like, whoa, cool. But I did not know that Guang Zhong succeeded <laughs> in, in kicking them and you know in, in fighting back. It was Kang Long because Kang Long was awesome. I mean, you think about it, right? China is like the United States, Vietnam yeah. is like Mexico. <laughs> <laughs> or even smaller. Smaller. <laughs> even smaller, right? Yeah, yeah. And how do how does it manage to retain its sovereignty and its its mm -hmm. identity for those hundreds of years? It's yeah, that is definitely one of our sources of pride of yes. being Vietnamese, right? Yeah, it's it's yeah, absolutely definitely. amazing. Now, now when you go, I mean, on the other hand, having said that, my last name is Wong. <laughs> my last name is Wong, <laughs> which is a Chinese last name. <laughs> So my answer, China. So so that that's another issue that I that I deal with internally because as I'm listening to the the the, the bronze drum the, the the story, it's talking about kicking out the Han all the time, right? Mm -hmm. Well, when when you say the word Han Viet, right? When you say that in Vietnamese, it's like you know we're talking about Chinese Vietnamese. We're talking about the language of Han, uh, you know, yeah. and it's you break a lot of the the words Mandarin to Vietnamese, and a lot of words are linked the same way the Roman uh, Latin alphabet or Latin languages tied into the English or current American, you know, and and it, or even closer is Latin and Spanish or Latin and Italian, and it's the same with you know analyzing the Chinese Mandarin and the Han, and so. I, like you, I share Chinese genetics as well. My, my great-grandfather was pure Chinese, uh, but my identity is Vietnamese. So when I hear, I was just talking to another friend of mine, when I hear that the Jung sisters so adamantly were after killing the, the Chinese, the Han, it's just some part of me is just like, you know, you're, you're trying to find the, the, the humanity in, in all of it where we're kind of all the same people, but we're very different as well. True. I um, I identify myself as Vietnamese, though, even though I carry a, a Chinese last name. But so, somehow I grew up identifying myself as Vietnamese. Yes, and and I it's probably yeah. because um, you know my great my grandparents don't speak Chinese, so it's like right several generations above. And a lot of Vietnamese kids here probably will in. The next generation will probably identify themselves as American and not Vietnamese. Right. right. Well, that much is true. Now, the question is, how do you help them cultivate the cultural identity so that will make them feel stronger, richer, happier, you know, knowing who they are? 
Yeah, that that is definitely a, a valid concern. Um, and that's something I actually want to get into um, in a bit with, you know, your mental health uh, work, because I, I know that that's like a big component. But before we get to that, um, with ICANN, when you were first going back to kind of identify students to um, help, how what were the criteria of students um, that you would, your organization would help? You mean in Vietnam? In Vietnam. Sorry. Yeah. So basically, we were looking for students who are from poor families, who are um, single mom, uh, like single mom families, and then also those who who have more siblings. Because the chance, if they, they if there are more children in the house, there are more chances that the big kids will have to drop out of school to take care of the young kids, so parents can go to work. And so, because, so if we find those uh, situations, we will help them to, to uh, we help them like, you know, $50, $75 a year, not a whole lot, wow. but just do something to help them stay in school. I mean, did that make an impact, $75 for the year? Well, it, I think it, I like to think it did. Um, actually, I think a lot of kids actually appreciate that and parents appreciate that because when, especially around uh, back to school time, they have no money, right? Money because in Vietnam, you have to pay for tuition, for books, for uniforms, all kinds of money that come in at once. So it, it does help. Um, and that leads me to this question, which is, whatever money that you made the pot that you had you could do it two ways you could give 75 dollars, which is not a lot to a lot of students or you could do let's say 500 dollars for one student how do you make that decision in that kind of disbursement model mm. so we did we did consider that and we did do both by the time those kids went up to college time then we have to up the ante and we have to give them like $500 a year or a thousand a year, depending on which college they go to. So we have like, um, we've been doing a college scholarships for over 10 years now. And, you know, we have doctors, uh, dentists, uh, teachers, uh, lawyers, um, all kinds, you know, engineers graduating from college because of the, the help of our um, scholarship. Now, when, when we give, we don't give so much to cover everything. We give, we help a portion. So imagine a, a student going to, to medical school in Saigon, right? Obviously, $1,000 a year is not going to be enough. But that helped them. And also, they tell us that emotionally, it, give, it gives them a lot of hope and confidence because somebody else, a stranger, believes in them, mm. believes in them enough to give them that money. Even though, you know, they still have to, um, they go to work at, um, you know, make a the restaurant. Yeah. So then they can have food to eat as well. And then they, they go to school and, and they work really hard to achieve their, their dream of their, uh, attending college. You, you know, one thing that I, I study and I think about quite a bit as I compare like Taiwan or Japan after the war 
is that the hunger level of the youth coming out of you know một cái cảnh đói nghèo it just propels the society for a good 20 to 30 years to really just break out and achieve right like we see a lot in, in Taiwan post the 50s where uh, they became the superpower in in manufacturing and and in their corner and i feel like right now that's what's happening in vietnam uh mà đi học quán you know and working at the quán cơm the the very thing that you just describe is sort of what's Vietnamese society right now is going through. And I think they have a, a good, I don't know, maybe 10 years left of this hungry nature uh, until the middle class rises to the point where their kids, this their second generation of middle class loses that hunger. And um, yeah, it's, it's the same process as uh, us coming yeah. to America, yes. right? Yeah. Yeah, so uh, in in my years, it was just like do or die. Uh, but my son, I don't think so. I don't no. think he experiences that, even though he worked really hard and he's self-driven and all that, but it's, it's from a different perspective. It really is. It really is. Yeah. And And finding that as a parent is sort of hard to navigate sometimes because you kind of want them to go at least above and beyond you, right? Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, you know, there there comes the uh there is the the um the struggle. Yeah. To raise the children in two cultures, right? Mm -hmm. I think at one time my son said something like, "Man, I know you went through a lot, but then you don't want us to go through the those hardship, do you?" Right? Of course we don't. But you know in some ways it's it's the the tough times that build the character right so i am strong and resilient the way i am today because of those years as right. a refugees right no. yeah but then i'm sure my son will have his moments um you know his years his uh, events in life that shape him give him the drive and the strength and all that we all do but by and large as a generation you don't see that drive as strong as, as you know, people, you know, later in later years, they become more well-established. Um, if they come over from Vietnam and they have like a network of support already, uh, you know, system already, we didn't have those. Mm -hmm. Even, you know, in my years, it, it was like um, what I call the years where when nước mắm vẫn còn là nước muối, Back then, there was no nước mắm, and it was just, they called it nước mắm, but it was basically nước muối, right? Salt water. That's all there was. Wow. Now, have you seen a transition from the early years in the 2000s with the students that you work with to today? Or is it still the hungry kids? Because poor people will be poor people and the help that you give will still be as just as effective as it was in 2000 or in the you know late 90s i would say kind of the same because poor people are still driven to rise up right and there was one girl who cried and they made us cry and they said uh, she said that she wanted she appreciated scholarship she wanted to become a nurse and to come back to work in her village because she said only, how did she say it? Chỉ có những người khổ mới biết nó khổ như thế nào. 
And so that's kind of like, you know, and you will always, you society in Vietnam, economically, it seems like it's getting better, but it's getting better not for the majority of the people, right? And so because of that, there are always poor people who are starving or craving for opportunities to, to finish school, to have an education so they can, they can build their life. You do a lot of humanitarian work, um, not humanitarian, community work in San Jose and where the area that you live in with mental health and, and that kind of work. Uh, how do you, um, how would you describe that kind of work uh, locally where you have a center, I believe, right? Mm. Oh, I forgot to tell you that, you know, we also have the U.S. scholarship for Vietnamese American students in the U.S. And we focus on um, students who, who care to give back. And that's how we continue the, the, mm -hmm. to nurture the spirit of giving back, paying forward and all that. So in terms of mental health, I realized, so I got my MBA from Stanford 1994. Then I went back to get my MSW, Master of Social Work from San Jose State in 2017. Because I, what I realized is that um, there's so much mental health in our community. It's hidden, it's buried, it's pervasive, it's everywhere, right? And it's it's to the point where in the name of peace, people in the family don't talk about it, but generations walk, I mean, grow apart that way. Just so they don't argue, they shut up. They don't talk, they don't argue, but they went separate ways. The grandparents, the parents, the children. And it's all because of mental health. Well, mental health is sort of like a technology to me, right? It, it really is. It's like tools. And you could be stuck in the Bronze Age. You could be stuck in the whatever age, Industrial Revolution. There's different stratas to to the language of mental health and for some reason when the idea of mental health comes into our community especially with my mom in the early years about maybe while i was talking about this i, I was in therapy for seven years and she was like you're not crazy why do you need to go see a therapist i said because there's a language there that i want to learn and it really is it's a language <laughs> a technology that i wanted to pick up for myself short of going to school yeah. I wanted to see why I was unhappy. I wanted to see why I was depressed. I wanted to see what made me happy. So seven years with the therapist that I paid a lot of money for, it resolved a lot of things yeah. and made me see things. But we are not liberated from this idea of, of being crazy in our community. Yeah, mental health is, um, is a very controversial word right in in our community mental health is actually a spectrum right and at the light end of the spectrum if you have stress and the stress level goes to uh, gets to the point where it disrupts your daily routines then you have mental health all of us have mental health it's just a matter of how can you manage it 
right? Can you, and then three things that I keep telling people, I can, our agency, we focus on outreach and community education and awareness. So we tell people that three things you should watch yourself. Number one, are you still eating and sleeping normally? Are you still functioning, going to work or going to school normally? Are, do you have a friend in whom you can confide? Because if you have those three things, then you can manage. That means you can manage your mental health. It's mental health that, and the heavy end of the spectrum is all the schizophrenia and, and all of those psychotic uh, features, uh, conditions. But our community keeps on thinking the mental health is, is on the, the heavy side of it. Right. And that's why I keep telling people that, no, 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 we all have it. So my dream in, in uh, working in bringing a mental health awareness to the community is that one day people can look at mental health as just catching a cold. Hey, I run into a tough time. I have stress. Okay, I get out of it. I go get, get help. I get out of it. But but the way we we function, which is like you know, don't don't air dirty laundry. Yeah. So we keep it inside, and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And I think the culture there's a cultural clash between Vietnam and Confucian society, and really the way we operate in the U.S. mentally. It's a, just two very different approaches to living. And I think yeah. that there's a, it's hard to, it's always been a difficult road to navigate. I think from it, from politics to religion, to all of the mechanics that happen in the family and, and, and society between Vietnamese and Vietnamese, uh, American uh, cultures. Yeah. You know, it, it's, it, and generationally, uh, there are differences too, right? I have a, one of my board members, he's young. And he has a therapist as part of his guru team to help him figure out how to keep a balanced life, how to do better at work, you know, this and this and that. Just like you said, you know, you go to a therapist to see how to keep yourself happy. It's like a coach. It's like a coach. Right, right. If you seek help early on, it's, it's like a coach. But then, if you don't, then it it, it goes down the the um, you know the wrong path, and it gets worse and worse. Then it's a different story. But it's so murky to enter the waters. Like to explain to my uncle, who you know came here as a teenager, worked his whole life here in America, and you know even the communication between an open mind person like him to his kids, there's no communication. They've given up. And the kids are in their mid-20s now, and, and he's a fun guy. My uncle is a fun guy, and I really like hanging out with him. But at the same time, there are very clear women are not equal to men. Those kinds of modules, those kinds of taboo, you know, in American society, that's, like a, that's ridiculous thinking. But he still harbors and carries that mode. And there's no way... That people, even I'm close to him in age than his children, for me to even change the way he looks at the world, it's impossible. And at some point, you know, politically, you know, we just have to cut each other off. We just don't, you know, and, yeah. and there's no changing it. No matter how much dialogue and how much love I give him, we cannot talk about 
our politics. We just can't have a fair fight. We can't have a fair discussion because it's just so, and I'm willing, I'm, I'm, I'm malleable. I'm, I'm, I'm open to, to discussion and I'm not going to, you know, fire back with anger and, but this is what's happening. And I think it, it's, you know, and I think we have, my uncle and I have a mild form of the generational gap, but when it comes to him and his kids, it's severe. There's no communication. Yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, unfortunately, that is the reality for many Vietnamese families. Yes. I, I did not know this because it didn't happen to my dad, but there are families out there who are telling me now that the husband, the grandpa, the, the, the still screaming at night, you know, um, and, and get so, and couldn't sleep and because of all the PTSD. Yeah. So it's it's a lot worse than we think. But because we don't know, I mean, coming from my family, I did not understand. So basically, when I went back to school uh, to do mental health, that's that helps me to understand my dad and his generations a lot better. You know, because before that, I used to think, well, don't they have anything better to do mm -hmm. than to right. demonstrate all the time? But then as I grew older, I realized that, you know, all the angst and all the issues that they have to deal with, you know, inside them. That's really, really difficult for them. And and I did not understand when I was younger because it that, didn't happen to me. Right. And that is their identity. Yes. Yes. And there is one more thing that they said that I appreciated, which is um, uh, they said they fight for Free, uh, uh, human rights in Vietnam because they felt like it was their obligation to help those, their comrades who, who they left behind. That's definitely PTSD. You know, you come back from a war. Why did I survive and not my, my mm. comrades, right? Not my, my friends. So, so that's that. Then, then I understood, okay, it is PTSD. It is mental health. And that's when I think that if we all if we all put get together, we can try to find a way to address this issue. At the end of the day, you know, I'm not arguing one way or another, but my question is: Is it worth it at this point? Well, think of it this way: If it's your father or grandfather, what do you say? Well, neither one of those are you know are still alive. Um, and even when they did were here, it, it, the, I can probably answer no, it was probably not worth it. When I look back on my life with my father, uh, it definitely certainly was not worth it. it. Although he wasn't too ideological, he was more of an artist. So I didn't have to, even though he was in the, the, the he was in the military and, and all of that, but he lived a much more intellectual and academic kind of uh, existence and art and free yeah. thinking. So I didn't have to really contend with him. But if you ask me, is it worth it to really work this out with my uncle and the living guys, the guys that are like, <laughs> the guys who are young puppies when they got here and now they're like entrenched in the way they think, it's not worth it. Because, you know, every time I see them once a, twice a year, you know, I want it to be a very happy and, and festive occasion where uh, the younger ones don't agree with me. My younger cousins don't, they, they won't come. It's just the way it goes now. Um, yeah. 
it's hard. It's a, it's a, it's, it's hard. Um, is it worth trying? Well, I still continue to try because, yeah. you know, I don't want to give up on, on my dad and his uh, generations. Yeah, my dad called me communist every time. I, I don't allow him to do something. <laughs> Let's say he, he likes to go buy the lottery tickets. And I said, no, you can't go. Oh, you communist. <laughs> so funny. <laughs> so, you know, things like that. Vừa khóc vừa cười, right? For me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, but I, I I think that um, right now having conversa conversation with you about this is is wonderful, and being able to breathe and and, and air it out is a wonderful thing. It, it's so funny. I just saw recently uh, a post. My my cousin's about five or six years younger than me. She's a, a pro fighter, a pro MMA fighter, and there were she's up against her opponent in the little Facebook ads and posts that she posts. And in the one girl's, uh, uh, she's from, I think, Panama or Brazil or somewhere. And in my cousin, I mean, she was born in the United States. There's a red flag with a star, you know? And I was so blown away. I don't think that she did that. I think the promoters did that, you know, to, to create this national divide or this rivalry. But it's two flags. And today, when I think about that, all of that is like going to be completely normalized in about 10 years from now, right? If a fighter, a young Vietnamese fighter, he's 25, 10 years from now, he's 15 or 12 years old right now, he goes up to fight on the national stage of the United States MMA, whatever, UFC. They're going to represent the red flag with the yellow star. And, you know, that generation that your father and my father, they're gone. And that's something I think that we're going to be the older ones at that time and the mental health behind that is going to be another interesting issue to me yeah i think um time <clears throat> time will impose on us certain force and pressure that we can't fight back right <clears throat> i i thought about this and i and that's why part of the uh, uh Part of my thinking about building the cultural identity is to help our children and grandchildren understand where they came from, how they got here, because this is a melting pot. I want to make sure that they know how they got here. So that's why one of my lifelong dreams, well, first of all, I can, we focus on helping parents raise children in two cultures, right? And the parents said that, uh, oh, you get the both of the best of both worlds, what, do you, what more do you want? But they don't realize the best of both worlds collide, you and know, conflict, right? Right, so every day um, when they go to school, they are encouraged to speak up, their own, to speak their own mind. But when they're at home, uh-oh, uh, uh, come to home, right? Speak up your own mind, speaking up your own mind is home and, and not allowed, la, 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 all that. So it's really hard. And one of my first staff, then she said, um, she told me, she said, when I, I cross oceans every time I walk through that door mm. when she was going to high school. And she, of course, she was valedictorian, you know, but that's the struggle that she went through. And so what we are trying to do is to help parents and grandparents understand, re 
reflect on their parenting experience in Vietnam and help them understand how parenting is expected here and how the, the culture works and how life works here so that they can really support their children. And one of my lifelong dreams is to, uh, I, would, I don't know if this is going to be politically, uh, you know, uh, uh, what am I call it? Incorrect. Uh, controversial. But what I really wanted is for the month of April to be recognized locally, permanently, and nationally, uh, sorry, not legally, uh, permanently, and nationally as the Vietnamese American History Month. Just like May is the uh, Asian Asian American History uh, Asian American Month, because there's so many things that tie with the month of April. You know, and April is really the birth of the Vietnamese American uh, community in the U.S. How do you make that happen? I don't know how it's going to happen. No, but no, that, no. I, I mean I that think, on a I think if level. that can be done, that will anchor. Hmm? I, I I meant, how do you make that happen on a mechanical level? Like, what do you do? Do you apply for it? Do you get petitions signed? How, how does that work? Well, um, so basically, if we can get that recognized recognition, then that will anchor the older generation. No, that will honor the older generations and anchor the younger generations. So what I'm thinking is if we can go get the county, you know, let's say California and Texas are the two big states, right? And then the 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 county with the heaviest, with the largest Vietnamese population, if they can get the county and the state to acknowledge, to recognize and, and kind of sign it into law or something to recognize the month of April as Vietnamese American History Month, then that will, you know, eventually then we will go up to national. I like that. I like that uh, idea a lot. But I don't know how to do it, so I'm going to need a lot of help. <laughs> we, we speak it into the universe to, to allow it to, to, to take place one day. Yeah. It would be interesting because at that point, what does that month mean to the people in Vietnam? Um... It, it, I don't know. It, to me, of course, in Vietnam, they celebrate the, the uh, victory and all that. But what we, to me, that month, yes, there was a lot of destruction and, and um, you know, and death and pain and sufferings during the month of April in 1975. But it's through that pain, it's through those, the, those sufferings and the destruction that the late that the younger generations rise up you know the the parents my parents generations brought us to shore to american shore and gave us the life that you know with freedom and liberty and all that and and democracy and that's when that's why i i, I feel like you know vietnamese americans is kind of like the like the the image of the phoenix rising from the ashes mm. of their ancestors so I don't care what they say in Vietnam, but to me, the month of April means a lot to Vietnamese American because it is the birth of Vietnamese American community in the U.S. That's a 
segue for me into asking, where do you spend most of ICANN's energy and sort of um, opportunities or time between Vietnam and the US now? Um, because ICANN seems to help with students in Vietnam and help with the community here. How do you mm -hmm. proportion uh, the two uh, geographies? So right now, I, I would say that our focus is more on, on in the US, on helping the community here raise the next generations right, of caring leaders, right? We want to make sure that our children are healthy, happy, healthy, and, you know, uh, doing well. Vietnam, we, there's still some of us, uh, a small portion of ICANN that still care, uh, focus on helping the children in Vietnam, but it is a means to an end in the sense that, in the sense that, you know, helping, doing humanitarian work in Vietnam will help some of the Vietnamese Americans here feel happy and feel like they have, bring meaning to their life. So before, when I first started ICANN, you know, my focus was in Vietnam. But afterwards, when I look at it again, then I said, we got to focus here. And Vietnam, doing humanitarian work in Vietnam is a means to an end. It comes back to, to improve, enhance, enrich the life of Vietnamese Americans. Wonderful. That makes so much sense. Ajikwin, today, you know, we covered a lot and uh, things that I didn't uh, even <laughs> prepare. Um, thank you so much. I, I really appreciate the, the time that you spent. And I do want to say that this is in English and I would like to get back on very soon to do a Vietnamese episode with you so we can discuss things that, you know, sometimes it takes our episodes in very different directions. So um, yeah. hopefully you're open to that. And I just want our audience to know that a Vietnamese uh, episode will come and so maybe the, the the people that listen to this could allow their parents to hear the mental health issue because i think we're going to probably focus a lot more on that in the vietnamese uh, episode yes thank you thank you so much kenneth thank you for listening to the vietnamese with kenneth win the vietnamese is produced by Brittany tran special thanks to jane win catherine win tina fam sydney jamie and Christo trin please find us on instagram facebook and tiktok at the Vietnamese podcast. You can also find us on YouTube where you can subscribe, like, and comment. Please rate and give us a review wherever you find our podcasts. Thanks again for listening.